Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. And we bring kind of what we do as eating disorder experts to the general population, talking about how eating disorder issues actually are things that really everybody could learn from. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today I'm going to be sitting down with Opal co-founder and head of the exercise and sport program, Kara Bazzi. We're going to be discussing weight within athletic performance. Is it ever okay to be focused on weight to enhance performance? This is something that is really kind of an assumption that you should be focused on weight within some sports. But we have talked at length before about why that actually can be quite harmful and why we really believe the opposite. So we're going to be talking through that today. Yeah. Welcome, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Some of you listeners may have heard a previous podcast episode that was called Was I Only Fast Because I Was Anorexic? And that was unpacking a little bit of my story as a distance runner um, and addressing the issue of weight and performance. And we had our sport dietitian, Kelly Finan, on the episode to also address it from a nutrition perspective. And so this feels somewhat of a follow-up. And we recorded that episode, gosh, about a year ago? Yeah, probably maybe. Yeah. Um, And and we'll be linking it down just Yeah, in case you want to catch up on that if you haven't heard it. And that was, of course, before Mary Kane, the distance runner, came out, gosh, in November of this past year about her own experiences as a professional athlete running for the Nike Oregon Project under coach Alberto Salazar and her experiences around how weight and food and body was handled in that culture and calling it out as toxic. So there has been, since since Mary Kane's disclosure nationally, there are so many more conversations happening. And so it's exciting. It feels like a really big opportunity to come back to this question and maybe talk about it a little bit more in detail today in our session. So I'm excited that uh, more people seem to be interested in this topic and it feels like an opportunity again for people in our field and the eating disorder world to offer to the sport world some concepts and some ideas that seem really relatable as um, coaches and athletes are trying to unpack and understand the role of weight and performance. Yeah, it's cool. It is cool. It is cool. <laughs> and I think what, what's particularly cool to me is that it's becoming less of an assumption mm-hmm. that to be at a smaller, in a smaller body and at a lower weight is going to be helpful to you. Right. Totally. And I think, yeah, where I see a lot of agreement is the education and the science coming out about relative energy deficiency in sport, which is basically all systems are negatively impacted by not having enough adequate nutrition. And I feel like there's agreement about that. If that is the way to manipulate a body to lose weight for performance, at some point that's just going to be destructive for performance because there's not enough nutrition and fuel to support the body and to support the psychology. So that feels like there's maybe more understanding and agreement, but it does beg the question and leaves kind of the question, especially for those that are more in elite athletics around, well, would we ever be considering these things? Would we ever be talking about manipulation of nutrition or the conversation about periodization in sport? Would we consider times in the 
calendar year around racing or competition, that there would be room for some manipulation and there would be room for um, making those changes in order for peak performance. So that's kind of where I wanted to dive into a little bit today of those nuanced questions. Like, would we ever want to talk about body comp? Would we ever want to talk about a time that you would want to lean out as, as I know people talk about when and what age of athletes could we be thinking about that for, et cetera. So one thing we'll be linking is I thought this was really interesting. This came out, gosh, early January. It was actually, it came out the morning I was doing a coach's workshop, the coach's workshop we've, we've talked about before on the podcast, but this is, this, it's a, infograph. Would you call mm-hmm. this an infographic? Yeah. An infographic. One of the or original infographics that looks a lot like the like the food pyramid that I would have seen in first grade at school. Totally. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's like a triangle. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pyramid. <laughs> um, but it, I think it was put out by a few folks. Um, Dr. Kate Ackerman, who is a sports medicine doctor uh, in Boston, and she had partnered with actually a couple professional athletes, Kara Goucher and Lauren Fleshman. And I there may I might be missing people, but basically they're trying to get more conversation, more things into the research to create change within the sport culture. And so they put out this pyramid, which is trying to get at conceptualizing when we might be able to do body composition assessments, periodization, and what would be needing to be in place. So on the one hand, it is tracking nutritional skills. So in this chart, it says at the bottom, you need foundational nutrition skills. Then they have a developing portion and an advanced portion. And on the other side, they have an athlete stage development. So they have a developing athlete, a national or collegiate level, which is the middle of the triangle, and then an elite professional level is the top of the triangle. So basically, they're trying to track an athlete's development, how kind of at what level they are in athletics, and I would say development from an age perspective, alongside these nutritional skills. And essentially, they're saying at the bottom of the triangle for a developing athlete and foundational skills, really, you should not be doing any body comp assessments and no focus on kind of body composition weight when it comes to performance outcomes. So I think in that that category, I'm thinking of, you know, the high school athlete, the um, youth athlete, where somebody is growing and developing and they haven't even finished their their body development, essentially, right? They should be growing and changing and developing and, and getting larger, getting more fat, et cetera. Like that is not a place to be focusing on that. It's about all the other things to take care of oneself and to, to grow a person well, essentially. And then it gets to be a little bit more vague, right? Then the middle of the, this triangle, it's talking about limited focus, on body composition, only from a health perspective, it says. And then when you get up to the top of the triangle, it's talking about that this body comp can be, and periodization can be approached only with mature athletes with positive self-body image, okay? So the concept (laughs) is that you can kind of have this focus at the top of the pyramid when somebody has advanced nutritional skills and is an elite athlete. So sounds, sounds what do you think about that Carter? <laughs> <laughs> I mean I it sounds really overly simplified knowing that 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 sounds like a good plan mm-hmm. but th- knowing that most people regardless if they're athletes or not actually don't get almost any foundational skills with food taught to them in any way um I can imagine this being pretty difficult to make sure that the nutritional skills are as you know kind of elevated as the actual 
athletic development Mm -hmm. and their success isn't going to necessarily mean that they've figured out the way that they should be responding to food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a good starting place, again, as a response to all the conversation that's been happening. And yet the vagueness of, well, what does even foundational developing and advanced nutrition skills mean? How would any coach use that at this point? And I don't, I, I, you know, I, I certainly don't know where they want to go with this, um, this information and what they might have in the work. So, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, I applaud them for putting to try to keep the train moving forward. When I first saw this triangle, I immediately thought of Ellen Satter's work. And we've talked about that on the podcast before. Um, But she also has a triangle Mm -hmm. (laughs) called the hierarchy of food needs Mm -hmm. and is and really unpacks what I would imagine in some ways are these nutritional skills and specifics about what kind of foundational skills need to be built up to get to the point where instrumental eating would be an option for somebody. And and can you just describe a little bit more about what instrumental eating eating would look like anyways. Mm -hmm. What are we talking about there? Yeah. So instrumental eating, maybe to put it into the context of sport, I would say that's where we're talking about some periodization around nutrition things. It's talking a little bit about more of the functional part. So that might be where you're, you're using supplements, you know, in her terms, instrumental eating would be based on kind of foundation of uh, all these other parts about eating. So it still would involve adequate eating. You'd be getting enough food, but you would be working with manipulating or making decisions, not manipulating in a bad way, but making different decisions that you believe your body would be needing for peak performance that has to do with making nutrition decisions, right? So like it might be supplementation, it might be particular things that you are being aware of with um, minerals or vitamins or paying attention to some of those particular things that might be maybe less relevant when you're not training as hard and you're more focusing on your rest and recovery. Another idea behind instrumental eating for an athlete, and I could be slightly not describing this accurately. I'm not a sports dietitian, (laughs) Um, but I do know that this would be a place where people would consider doing the training, training, what's called training low. And my understanding is that you would be kind of going a little bit in a carbohydrate deficit before competition. And the idea is then when you do kind of then get uh, the carbs right before the competition, that the body can absorb those carbs um, better for the competition, for especially for an endurance event. Um, so that would be, again, I might not be describing that exactly accurately, but to kind of illustrate the point that that could be another thing, like a, a way that you're kind of talking about instrumental eating. You're using strategies nutritionally, essentially, that you believe lead to better performance. So you're manipulating the performance by the food that you're eating in a really particular way mm-hmm. at a particular time within your training schedule. Right. So when you're when you referenced Ellen Satter's hierarchy of food needs earlier, where does this idea of instrumental eating land and yes. and what comes before it that is Great really important? Question. <laughs> so that's at the top of the triangle. Okay. Carter. So very advanced. Yes. Skill. And this is where it talks about advanced nutritional skills. So the thing is, I think a lot of athletes skip this is a big point, skip all these other foundational skills and go into instrumental without having competency. I love that word competency with these other foundational skills. And I mean, that's very, very, very a significant um, part of building competency, building your kind of 
what allows somebody to be able to have kind of ease and freedom with food. These skills are so key so that when you're instrumentally eating, you're not putting yourself at risk for disordered eating patterns. I mean, that's huge. So you're kind of playing with fire if you don't have some of these foundational skills. And maybe some people can do the instrumental eating and not develop disordered eating patterns. But I think a lot of us, especially in the distance running community, have the same story where we we went instrumental and we didn't have other skills. And, you know, then things went on a bad path. Is there also concern that without the instrumental eating skill that, you know, yes, there would be disordered eating that could happen right then and there, but also that maybe there would be some sort of nutritional deficiency already? Is that is that part of the risk? Possibly. Someone's maybe not even taking care of themselves yet to be able to do that. Totally. Because the very bottom of the pyramid is the enough food. So that is really highlighting the first and foremost adequate eating. How many athletes know if they're adequately eating? That's a huge question mark, especially because there's a lot of unintentional inadequate eating. Uh, We're not just talking about people that are intentionally restricting. There's so much unintentional inadequate eating. And how do you even know if you have enough, right? Like that's a big question as an athlete. How do you know? Yeah. Question mark, right? You you might not be afraid of eating, but how do you even know if you're getting enough yeah. in your body? Yeah. I know that this is a funny example, but I was I watched Miss Americana, the Taylor yes. Swift documentary. I started that last night. Yeah, yeah. I watched it last night too. That's so Weird. funny. Weird. I know. Okay. And it, Taylor Swift was talking about when she was struggling with an eating disorder and, you know, as one of the top pop stars in the entire world. She has a very active schedule and a very active, physically demanding job to be performing for hours every single night, right? So we maybe wouldn't call her an athlete, but she's active. She's incredibly active, (laughs) right? right? And she was saying, I had no idea that in the middle of a show, I wasn't supposed to feel dizzy. Right. That I wasn't supposed to feel like I was about to faint. I thought totally. that that just meant that I was working really hard. And yeah, I knew I wasn't like eating very much. And I kind of watched myself get more and more obsessive about it. But mm-hmm. I thought I was supposed to be that tired. Mm-hmm. And she was like, gaining weight is the thing that has made everything else easier and better in my yes. life. So it's actually a great example. Beautiful, right? It's a great example. She had no idea that she was as underfed as she totally. was and what the signs were. Totally. And that's where, like, just to put make another plug for the REDS model, the relative energy deficiency in sport, like those symptoms can be the kind of signal that there isn't enough nutrition. Cues is, is a good start. Cues, uh, especially if somebody hasn't, again, isn't necessarily intentionally restricting. Um, cues meaning? Cues, your, your hunger and fullness cues. Yeah, okay. Like, Oftentimes they're very reliable, but especially we know with sports, cues can be really um, kind of messed with when you're training. Yeah. And so we kind of talk about mechanical eating has to happen around sport, the the training portion of the sport. We really rely a lot lot of times on mechanical eating and then we can lean into cues outside of that part. But they're not always, you know, they're not always reliable to show us if we have inadequate energy availability. So those signs are also another kind of catch to Mm -hmm. see if we're having enough, if we're having kind of like what Taylor Swift was experiencing, right? (laughs) Then that could show. Yeah, and it it, it reminds me of our our episode on shifting toxic sport culture around the fact that like, you know, maybe, maybe you have a sense of internal regulation cues with appetite, but do you have regulation skills and knowing where your limit is in a culture that says no pain, no gain? Right. And you have the regulation skill to go, you know what, I've pushed past my limit mm-hmm. three times over now, mm-hmm. and I've actually hit 
the real limit and here are the signs in my body. Right. Like I can imagine that not actually being something that a lot of athletes could feel very clear on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Maybe not. Totally. Like what's the, I think that question gets brought into our groups often um, in rethinking exercise and sport at Opal around how do we know when we're like pushing ourselves kind of that healthy pushing versus the the pushing that would you know, not be supportive of having kind of a healthy body, right? But the signs that we talk about within the sport context, we would want to know, like, be concerned if there's dizziness, if there's fatigue. Um, and in fatigue, I mean, I think sometimes athletes would know, like, fatigue from a hard workout versus kind of a general fatigue or seeing a difference in a workout between workouts. Like, why did I feel a certain way in this this one year of competition and my workouts, and now I'm just generally feeling a more a pattern of a different level of energy dehydration. I mean, there's definitely a lot of those kind of physical symptoms. Cold intolerance can also be a physical symptom that could suggest not enough nutrition for an athlete. And of course, you could always, if you have access and availability to a sport dietitian, then they can really help hone in a little bit more too of what your needs would be and do some more science around that with calculations. Again, there's some mystery to it, but at least some more general ideas. So adequate, adequate food. Yeah, that's the number one. Yeah. So, okay, if you don't have adequate food, you shouldn't be in. I mean, in some ways, like instrumental eating, you're not ready for it. Yep. Right? Should be eating more yeah. first. And consi- so then this next one is acceptable food. Once you're sure you're getting enough to eat, you can develop more discriminating taste. You can reject foods that don't appeal to your appetite. Kelly, our sports dietitian, talks about getting, like you're getting all the macronutrients, like you're getting enough carbs, proteins, and fats, like carbs, proteins, and fats are essential. If you're just eating enough. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, And so then you're kind of this, the I guess both of these next ones, acceptable food and reliable ongoing access to food is that this is where you are having kind of the consistency of the adequacy. It's consistent across all these kind of maybe barriers like time and schedules and setting setting and access, but that you have the skills we've talked about on our on our podcast, contextual skills. You have the right. contextual skills to reduce the barriers to have that consistency ongoing. You're adequately eating ongoing. So for example, I heard um an athlete talking about one of the barriers for her to have consistent, adequate nutrition is that the times of her practices and classes didn't lend to being able to get, you know, to the the cafeteria was essentially closed. Her, her on-campus cafeteria she couldn't have access to because of the barrier with time. And so that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And and she didn't have enough of her own financial means to get her own food, right? So there's an access issue, so a response. So somebody responsibly, I think, to do in that situation is to then at least advocate, right? Have a conversation with coach. Have a conversation with someone on campus to problem solve that strategy, right? Like that was a real barrier, yep. and yet that is such an essential part of taking care of oneself is the consistency of the eating. So if there are barriers that are kind of out of your control, then how do you advocate? in order to make that change. And honestly, like if, if they were really resistant to making that change, you kind of wonder about whether that's the right place for her. For an athlete, time changes with travel. Hmm. Like that's kind of a big deal. In terms of impacting like what schedule you'd be on with yep. eating. Yeah. Yep. Like that's, that can be a really big thing for traveling, you know, kind of across the country, national, you know, having competitions, maybe even international competitions. 
you're thinking about recovery window of like this is where that mechanical eating you're still ha- again you're you're having your body consistently eat in the recovery window as an athlete regardless of whether your cues are telling you you're hungry or not so the, this is that consistency contextual skills problem solving again I would want to see those things being really in place and and competent and kind of a no questions about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. that your body needs that before you would, again, move into some kind of instrumental eating. Um, And then those next two on the the pyramid, good tasting and novel syncs back up with um, eating attitudes. Oh, the eating attitudes. Yeah, the eating attitudes that there's... And and just uh, some context, we're talking still about kind of some ways of thinking about these hierarchy of food needs and competency skills through dietitian... Ellen Satter's work. Mm-hmm. And we did four episodes on those four different skills. So you can go back. There are episodes 64 through 67. We'll yeah. link them. But um, that's what we're referencing. Yes. These really good crucial stuff. categories in understanding our relationship to food. Mm-hmm. So novel and good. Um, I think of for the athlete where this sort of fits to in my mind is the pleasure and the fun and the that aspect. And that can be tricky for an athlete as well because an athlete can really hone in on nutrition as mainly functional. Um, again, kind of going into that instrumental place before also having both the enough and the place of food where pleasure's an aspect of it. That's just generally speaking, I think a trickier thing within an athlete's life is how do you incorporate pleasure and play, especially if it's been with exercise, with food mm-hmm. in general, seeing the value of it, seeing that in the big picture of sustainability as an athlete. My belief is strongly held that that is a, a vital part of kind of sustainability in sport and athletics is maintaining pleasure. It reminds me of this piece on this podcast. Um, we're actually going to be interviewing Tina Muir. She is also she's a British runner and she has um, a podcast and she's really in the sport world and she interviewed Kara Goucher um, after the the Mary Kane episode. Who's Kara Goucher? And Kara Goucher again ran for Nike Organ Project. She is, I think she well, she's yeah, she's still competing and still running. Their episode was about weight and performance as well. And she talked about leaning out right before her her races. And even kind of what I would say, like giving up some of these more good tasting foods. <laughs> um, so she talks about dessert and alcohol being things that she would um, abstain from a few weeks before she'd race for this small window of time. And what I loved in this podcast is Tina, after she kind of goes, she kind of talks about it. And then Tina, you know, just asks this question. She's like, well, do you think you needed to do that? And then Kara pauses and she goes on to say, well, yeah, I mean, that's just been ingrained. I mean, that mentality of that kind of way of periodizing, it's been ingrained from coaches, kind of her whole career and about her leaning out and and the body weight changing at the last bit. But then she sits there and she's like, actually, when in reality, it probably probably didn't matter. Mm. And for a professional athlete to say that, like even in that moment of being asked that question and like, huh, actually, it probably didn't. And then she goes on and talks about there was a big celebratory meal for something related. I can't remember to her husband. And it was the night before a race. And she just let herself enjoy and celebrate and eat and drink and kind of really just respond to what she wanted to in the moment of the celebration. And she had an awesome race the next day. So she just was like, well, she caught evidence of her own, of that, of that right in the moment of the conversation. And I just, 
I highlight that because really is it is this are we working with truth? And I, I appreciated that example because the, the things she cut out were these things that gave her pleasure. And she did say, like, I wouldn't be able to give up desserts and alcohol a year because I like them. But then right. she was doing them for the three weeks and she could pivot back and it didn't seem to cause her too much distress. Yeah. But she obviously cares about having pleasure in her eating. Right. Um, and did she even really need to do it for the three weeks? Mm-hmm. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for like That's bringing so cool. that question. And yeah, it kind of pokes at it almost as if it's um, really more about superstition in some mm-hmm. way. It's like kind of placebo the placebo effect. Yes, too. exactly, exactly. <laughs> the placebo effect, or the the thought that you you know if you do this thing, then you'll be psychologically prepared. I mean, that's yeah. what I hear. Like that you're able, you're doing everything in your control totally. to be perfect enough or in perfect shape or in perfect this or perfect that to perform better suddenly. But totally. actually, there are other things to consider that would also boost your performance or your happiness that week or your energy. Yep. Yep. We've talked about like before rituals in sport performance because athletes can heavily lean into them and they can be positive. Right. But then the question is what happens if they're not there and then you're kind of holding your hat on it. I think that my question about that, and I'm sure maybe a lot of people listening would be wondering about this too, playing devil's advocate, I I suppose, Mm. (laughs) is that why if if we're saying that you know why even cut the alcohol and the sweets right before the race isn't that kind of a double standard to then think like well but there might be a time where there is yeah, so a use for exactly. instrumental this is eating. where i want to separate instrumental eating from this leaning out and body comp okay so piece. what is it in differentiation from that okay so when i think about instrumental eating i think about that it's the motive is not to change shape. Okay. The motive isn't to lean out. The motive isn't to lose weight. When it comes to periodization of body composition and this idea, even using the Kara Goucher example, that she was taking those two things out of her diet to lose pound, like to lose weight right before the race. I feel more strongly about that being used because what would happen if those things that she did didn't lend itself in weight loss? Like that, again, to me, supposes, as she kind of talked about it, that that just is what happened to her body. And it could have just happened to her body. She could have body knowledge that knows like kind of how her body responds to different things. But oftentimes, if the goal is to lose weight or to lean out, again, you're playing with fire because you don't know how your body responds to different things, right? So it's not weight as the weight loss is a secondary thing to kind of another motivation. If your outcome is that you want to lean out or lose weight before a competition, that I would say you're getting in dangerous territory. And I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't even recommend it on the higher pyramid. Um, And that to me feels very different in distinguishing from using nutrition strategies and within nutrition strategies, kind of why would you, why would one do it? Yeah. To me, it's like, why would one do anything else? It can be one of the many things that people are exploring about themselves and seeing how it impacts. Like it would be, I would want it to come from more of an experimentation, knowing one's body, thinking about the many factors, you know, just the same as like sleep. How am I impacted by different levels of sleep? How am I impacted by stress? How am I impacted by hydration? How am I impacted by nutrition? Where you want to have caution is the links we're making as athletes of things being causal when they might be associated, right? Like, yeah. Because you can attribute, you can misattribute things, right? You could have an awesome race and be like, well, I did these three things the night before and attribute your awesome race to those three things. But 
those might not be the three things of why you right. had your awesome race. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to, I mean, I would hold a lot of that. I personally, yeah, yep. I think holding a lot of that lightly, but if somebody is, has more of that interest around kind of that nutrition component of, you know, how they're being impacted by, by what they're, the decisions they're making with nutrition. Again, if, if they have all of these other competencies in place, I think that can be one of many other things that they're kind of exploring Mm -hmm. in their um, toolbox, especially when we're talking about elite and professional athletes, right? Where you are sort of uncovering, this is your job and you're uncovering the different aspects of your life that could um, help and lend to peak performance. And for some elite athletes, I would imagine having nutrition off the table in that way might be better for peak performance because of the anxiety it could create. Like that might be part of knowing oneself. And I think you you said this earlier, maybe not on recording, but you said something about how it's basically like 99% of the time, this isn't a thing that we should be worried about. Mm-hmm. And maybe just 1%. Mm-hmm. There's a time where there is some question to be asked around what could be useful. Yeah. It just feels like there's so much harm that's been done when we fixate on this. And of course we get into, there's, there's the risk factors of this disordered eating component and preoccupation and kind of misery that can come with all of this. Mm -hmm. But I also think there are people where they, they do pay more attention to some of the, the science or the, or the specifics and they enjoy it. Yep. And it's okay. But again, I would say probably even if they don't have language for it, I would imagine, I, w- I guess I would assume I'd love to talk, like unpack, like get, get more data on this, mm-hmm. but to see that they have these other components of their relationship in, with food in place, because we know that if they're not, especially if they're not eating adequately, then it just is like a no-go. Right. For those of you that are listening that do identify with ath- as an athlete and think about kind of this nutrition's part in sport... You know, one thing I wanted to maybe read off a couple aspects of what a competent eater might, how they might be approaching food. And then you can kind of look at yourself through this lens and see if how, what kind of comes up for you as I read a couple of these statements where there's an integration of what we're eating and how we're eating it and the mindset around the eating. Um, So a couple, a few of these, I'm relaxed about eating. I'm comfortable about eating enough. I feel it's okay to eat foods I like. I'm comfortable with my enjoyment of food and eating. I trust myself to eat enough for me. So those are things to chew on. No pun intended. (laughs) Cheesy, 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 cheesy. I think that they do serve as like some just little reminders of of what a more relaxed, at-peace relationship with food would look like and and how important that actually can be um, to performance itself. Exactly. To not have that kind of rumination going on in your brain the whole time, too. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so much, Kara. If you want to learn more about this topic, we certainly referenced a lot of other conversations that we've had today. So I would make sure to look at the description box uh, where you found this podcast to find some links to those former episodes, both about Ellen Satter's competency skills, about our conversation with Mary Kane, our conversation about was I only fast because I was anorexic, etc. So make sure that you check that out and listen along for more information. And to be updated about new releases, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. 
If you want to learn more about Opal, you can follow along with us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Opal Food and Body. Or if you want to learn more about our community events and our programming, make sure you go to opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Join us next time.